welcome guys to our latest apologia class tonight we're going to talk about roman catholicism and i'll tell you right off the bat here that these notes i took right off of the north american mission board website as i was studying nam if you ever hear the term nam that's north american mission board that's our southern baptist mission board of north america so they have a set they have a they have a on their website a whole apologetics resource uh, section it's big and a lot of stuff so i was pulling my notes together and then i i ran it i looked to see what nam had to say and i looked at their notes and i'm like i'm like this i could reinvent the wheel but this is like everything i'm going to go over with you guys and so i definitely want to especially in light of the ed litton scandals of our convention with plagiarism <laughs> i want to just make sure everybody understands that these notes we're going to work off of um came from north american mission board of course i've got a few of my own notes i'm going to use and talk to you guys about and kind of my own experience working with and, and witnessing the roman catholics um first thing i i guess if i was to boil down you know really what what is what's what's the big difference here when you get down to what is the difference between between us and the Roman Catholics, because as we go through this study, you're going to see there there is there is a lot of commonality on on, on a lot of big big issues, like fundamental issues in some ways. But then, on the other hand, you can, we can't be further apart from them. Um, it, 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 we would describe the Roman Catholic Church as apostate. And that's a technical term. Because there are cults out there, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, and we're going to talk about those groups in future classes. But I, I don't know if that would be really technically the appropriate word for the Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholic Church. I would say that apostate is probably the most technically correct term because an apostate is somebody who was with the faith and left the faith. The Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, those guys were never part of the faith. At no point were they like Christian and then wandered off. They started from day one um, as, as, as a cult, as something that masqueraded as Christianity, but not, it, it didn't have, it never was, it never rooted at any point in orthodoxy. Roman Catholicism, you can make a real good argument, was. What we think of now as Roman Catholicism, you can trace and you can go back into history and you can see where that, where that line went off the trail. And then you can keep going back to where they, what we would say they were on the trail per se. In fact, we as born-again Bible-believing Christians, Reformed folks, Baptist folks, there comes a point if you go far enough back in history where we converge with them, where they went off the path, but at one point we all came from the 12 apostles and ultimately from Jesus in a sense, so chronologically. So we describe them as, as apostate. And the issue is, if you boil it down, why is there this big division? It's over the issue of authority. Now, here's the basis of, of where we come from at New Hill and as Baptists and Southern Baptists and Reformed Baptists and Reformed Evangelicals and Bible-believing Christians comes out of 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. 
I'm sorry. Verse 7. Where am I at? I'm in chapter 4. I was right. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe that at New Hill, and again, as, as Reformed people, people that came out of the Protestant Reformation, all Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and profitable. And as we go through this study, you're going to begin to see how the Roman Catholic Church contradicts that statement. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's profitable that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what's the Apostle Paul telling Timothy? That the scripture is the basis for all, all of Christian doctrine, all of Christian teaching, all of our Christian witness. Everything that we need to know about Christianity is found right here in the Bible. And all of this scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't dispute that, of course. But as we go through the study, you're going to see that they say it is not enough for teaching and for reproof and for training in righteousness. And that the, that the Bible is not enough to equip the man of God for every good work. They fundamentally do not believe that. Now, I don't know how they, would get, like, how they would answer that charge. But logically, if you follow their reasoning, they don't believe that. So that's our basis. That's the difference. So, you know, you need, to you need to understand that. Where are we coming from? This is where we're coming from, this book right here. We believe that everything we need to understand God, to understand mankind, to understand reality is, is in these books, 66 books of the, of the Bible. So let's talk about Roman Catholicism. Obviously, the name is Roman, the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, that is not a term that really you would ever have heard prior to the Reformation. Prior to the Reformation with Martin Luther, 500 years ago, you would have heard the term Catholic Church and you would have heard the term Orthodox Church. There was, they, they wouldn't have described, the, the term, the early reformers thought of themselves as Catholics. They, they didn't think we were starting some new religion. They were reforming the Catholic Church is what, what they were thinking. And so the term began to emerge to distinguish these Catholics as well, we're Roman Catholic. So technically, as Christians, we are Catholic. In fact, we would even go so far as to say we're the true Catholics. We're, we're the ones that go back to Jesus and the apostles. So when we're talking about, and oftentimes we'll say things like, oh, my Catholic friend or whatnot, probably the best way to describe it is my Roman Catholic friend. The current Pope is Pope Francis. Um, and he's got, you know, pretty significant problems that we won't get into right now. Just even as a Catholic, he's very, very strange. Uh, membership in North America, according to NAM, says there's 67 million. What is that saying? 67 million and 11,903. I don't know what that means. 
Maybe that's what it is. 11,000. Yeah, you're right. That actually sounds kind of low to me. Southern Baptists have 50,000, but not 67 million members. Anyway, there's a lot of them. And then worldwide, it's, it's massive. It's ma that Yeah, that's right. It's massive. Massive amount, millions and millions and millions, and millions and millions of people call themselves Catholic or Roman Catholic. Their world headquarters is in Vatican City in Rome, of course. What's its history? And I, I like the way Nam words this. Secular historians date the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. Notice that distinction. Roman Catholic Church as an institution uh, with centralization and papal authority, the, kind of like the way we think of it now, basically, to the 5th and 6th centuries. Okay? five, 600 years after Christ, after Pentecost. We're studying right now in the church, we're studying through the book of Acts when the church was born. So five, 600 years later. The authority of the Pope reached its height in the 13th century with Innocent III who claimed the title of Vicar of Christ. So even that concept of the Vicar, that means the Vicar of Christ, uh, that term means in the stead of Christ or instead of Christ, in his position. Understand how profound of a statement that is. We, when we stand up to preach the word of God, we are, we are telling people to submit to this book. And if I say something that's wrong, it ain't this book's fault, right? I'm not Jesus. When he's operating um, what they would call ex cathedra, sitting on the seat of Peter, they would describe it as he is speaking as if Jesus is speaking. That's a pretty big statement to make. But that concept did not take root and really begin to take off until the 13th century. So let's talk about their doctrine. This is important. Catholics' doctrine on God. Roman Catholics affirm the triune nature of one God. That's good. God is one. God has revealed himself as three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By the way, whenever you see in the rest of these notes, CCC, that's referring to Catechism of the Catholic Church. Catholics do not consider Mary part of the Trinity. Sometimes you'll hear people say things like that. That's not what they're saying. Catholics teach that God is good, loving, and truthful. This is all thumbs up so far. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. God is the creator of all things. Thumbs up. God both transcends and sustains the universe. So the response that Nam put together here says Protestants and Catholics affirm the same belief about God's nature. I want to tell you guys, make sure you understand, that's a big deal. That's a real big deal. Their understanding of God and the Trinity is correct. It is biblical. Of, of God's nature. Of Jesus, Roman Catholics affirm Jesus as the second person of the Holy Trinity, as well as his full deity and full humanity. Roman Catholics regard Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's messianic hope. Roman Catholics believe Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a Roman cross, was buried, and was resurrected from the dead. 
He returned to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Thumbs up. Protestants and Catholics affirm the same beliefs about Jesus' nature, death, burial, and resurrection. So we're all, this is good. This is why pretty much the rest of what we're going to go over is so tragic. Because it, it just shows the level of apostasy that seeped into that group. Because with Mormons, they don't believe any of this. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe any of this. The Muslims who say they believe in Jesus, they don't believe in any of this. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. They have uh, hypostatic union. They don't believe any of this. The Roman Catholics do. As I said at the beginning here, authority. This is where we go off the rails here. Roman Catholics accept three sources of authority. The Bible, tradition, and the teaching ministry, or you'll hear the term sometimes magisterium, of the church, led by the Pope. Three sources of authority. Bible-believing Christians, we here at New Hill, we have one source of authority. And it's this book. Why? Because the Word of God is breathed out, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and, and it says here, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so they say, no, that, that, ain't, that ain't right. I don't know how else to interpret what they're saying here. They're saying it's not, it can't be complete. There are three sources of authority. First, of the Bible. Roman Catholics affirm the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, plus several apocryphal books, that most Protestants consider spurious. That's called, as he says, the Apocrypha. So if you ever look at a Roman Catholic Bible, it's bigger than ours. And there's a number of reasons for that. We'll talk about the Apocrypha here in a second, but it is... So the 66 books that we have in common, you can pick up and read and don't have to worry about... Like, for example, the Jehovah's Witness has a Bible, the New World Translation, and it's told, told trash. Told trash. It's not based on anything in the Greek or the Hebrew. They just literally wrote their own Bible. The Mormons would, would make you think they have the King James Bible, but even the, the Mormons went in there and screwed around with it. So you can't read a Mormon Bible for nothing. Not true of the Roman Catholic Bible. And the Apocrypha, for what it's worth, is accurately translated. It's good scholarship. It's just not inspired. It says here, Roman Catholics are encouraged to read the Bible. The teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, quote, forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the divine scriptures. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. That's, that comes right out of their Catholic catechism. And I'm sure throughout history, there, there's been times where this has been not quite clearly explained from the from the magisterium but I, I would say there's probably never been a point where they flat out would say don't ever read it now for centuries it was in latin in the latin vulgate but if you could somehow get off the farm and learn how to read latin i'm sure you go ahead and read it they kept it in latin because most people didn't have the time or the resources to learn the language but technically that they didn't, that's not really a problem. So that's good. But here we go off the rails. Tradition, the second 
source of authority. Tradition refers to the teachings of the apostles that Roman Catholics believe have been preserved in the church apart from the Bible. So there are things that the apostles taught not in this book, not in this Bible. And it was preserved orally by the ancient Christians who taught it to the next generation, taught to the next generation, who taught to the next generation. We get into, we talk about like the Marian dogmas and teachings. Where did that come from? None of that's in the Bible. They don't care. They would say it was taught by the apostles, taught to that generation, the generation, and it's been passed on. It's tradition. Here's what they say about it. This living transmission, so one generation to the next, this living transmission accomplished in the Holy Spirit is called tradition since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Uh, no, no, it's not, but that's what they say. Catholics view tradition as an authority equal to the Bible. We look, I think, as Reformed Baptists, we, and especially just more general Baptists, we do ourselves a major disservice by not studying church history and by ignoring tradition. Um, those Christians 1,500 years ago or 1,900 years ago or 600 years ago, they had the Holy, same Holy Spirit that we have. And they had, you know, they weren't dumb. And they thought through things. So it'd be good to be aware of how has the church looked at this issue before? How did we think through these things? Our forefathers. That's good. That's good. But we do not elevate that tradition to the Word of God. We relegate it. We say this is very interesting. It may be very helpful. It may be consistent with the Bible, right? But it's not, it's not the Bible. It's not the same thing. Teaching ministry of the church, magisterium. Roman Catholics believe that their bishops, in communion with the Pope, We'll talk about this in, in a second here. Have been given the task of authentically interpreting both the Bible and tradition. This task has been entrusted. This is a quote from their catechism. This task, quote, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. According to the Catholic catechism, the faithful receive with docility the teachings and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. Let, let me just stop here, okay? Let's follow what's going on here. They believe that their bishops, remember, the Pope is the Bishop of Rome. They believe that the Pope is the first amongst equals. So the Pope if there's a dispute amongst the bishops, the Pope or, or, or the Bishop of Rome, his job is to fix it, to pick a side, to, to, to clarify. And then the rest of them have to acquiesce. Like they have to, they, he wins. Because he's, remember, the vicar of Christ. So it's no different as if Jesus got them all together in the room, started knocking skulls together, so you guys knock this off, this is what's true. When the Pope says it, that's it. Okay, 
So this, and that's not to say that the, the bishops do have a voice for sure, no doubt. But when it comes down to it, and I want to say this, that concept, not the inerrancy part that they've later added on, the vicar of Christ stuff that they later added on, but it is a fact that in the ancient church, there were bishops, there was a bishop in Rome, and when there was controversy, they did look to the bishop of Rome for leadership, for counsel, for advice. They did look at him, not for any reason out of the Bible, but they just functionally did. So when we tell them that this idea of the vicar of Christ being the Pope, and that he can infallibly determine doctrine and what is true tradition, that that's a later invention, they will point to instances much later or, or earlier than the 13th century or even maybe the 6th or the 5th century where the, the bishops would look to the Bishop of Rome. And that, is, that did happen. But none of them thought that he was sitting in place of Jesus. That's also true. This issue of tradition is interesting because I want you to notice that this magisterium, they, they claim that this 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 hierarchy of bishops with the Pope being at the head of the table they have the authority to interpret the Bible and tradition so when we start to dig into church history which we many times especially again pick on the Baptist we've been woefully light on in our past we start, we start hearing from them saying, we've always taught this. Christianity always taught You reform people. You guys, won't, you guys are the ones that went off the trail. This is not new. They begin to read the old stuff. And they begin to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. They start getting into Augustine. They start getting into Ignatius. They start getting into these guys. And they're going, wait a minute. That's not what was being taught. At least not by everybody. So... How do you know? So you're telling me that this is what the tradition is when you're ignoring all of this other stuff that can, has just as much weight, at least uh, in what was written, you can make just as much of an argument that this was the case. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. What is true tradition is determined by the magisterium. So it literally doesn't matter what other argument you can make about this other tradition stuff. No, that's not real tradition. So they say, we interpret the Bible. So they would say, yes, this is God's word. But you don't know how to read this. It's good for light devotional stuff, right? But how can you understand what's in here without us? We have to interpret this for you and explain this to you. And we do it infallibly. And tradition. So you that's great. We're glad. They'd say, we're glad that you're studying church history that's great they're one of their favorites or one of their kind of their favorite uh cliches is to study church history is to no longer be protestant <laughs> so they think that's good but we need to be the ones determining for you what part of that history counts and what part doesn't count that's very critical so it all comes back to the magisterium really you know, we believe in sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our infallible and inerrant source. If you really follow the logic, they are sola ecclesia. 
Is that a word? Ultimately, their, their, their ultimate authority is, their, is themselves, despite what they say. Because when you point to tradition that contradicts their teaching, or if you point to the scriptures that trump what they're saying or contradicts what they're saying, just like I did out of 2 Timothy 3, doesn't matter. Because the magisterium is the bottom line in that group. Here's what Nam says as a response to this. Let me back up. I think I missed a paragraph here. As far as the teaching ministry of magisterium, the teaching ministry of the church magisterium is also considered equal in authority to Bible and tradition. According to Catholicism, the Bible, sacred tradition, and the teaching authority of the church, quote, are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. That's their view, our response. Roman Catholics are correct to encourage people to read the Bible. However, the Apocrypha should be rejected. That's the first thing. These additions, the Apocrypha, are uninspired and are spurious. The Jews of Palestine never accepted the inspiration of these books. That's critically important. That's critically important because when Paul was writing about all Scripture, when Jesus was referring to all Scripture, there was a set of books that they had in mind that everyone understood, and they were all aware of the Apocrypha, and they revered the Apocrypha. And by the way, there is... Nam's calling it spurious. There's some worthwhile stuff to read in the Apocrypha. Historical context, all kinds of stuff that you can read in the Apocrypha and, and, and learn things from. It's not fairy tales per se, or worthless per se, but the Jews relegated those books. They didn't keep those books in the temple. So when Jesus was referring to the scriptures, when Paul's referring to scriptures, they're not referring to the Apocrypha. And that's not a debate, that's a fact. Jesus never quoted from the Apocrypha, but he quoted from the Old Testament. The Apocrypha defends dishonesty and deceit and teaches that salvation depends on deeds of virtue. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit enables people to understand God's word. All religious teaching must be evaluated by comparing it with the Bible. The Bereans used the scriptures to verify the truthfulness of the apostles' teachings. Why? Because the word of God is breathed out by God, the scriptures, and they're profitable for training and for reproof and correction, that the man of God may be complete. That's why, that's exactly why. Moses warned of the danger of adding to or, subtra or subtracting from the scripture, in particular, the Old Testament. I mean, that's exactly, Moses is specifically talking about the Old Testament. Jesus warned about the possibility of tradition perverting the intent of God's word. See that in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. Paul informed the Colossians of the danger of being led astray by following, quote, the tradition of men. Peter reminded his readers that they had been redeemed from, quote, vain conversion received by tradition, conversation received by tradition. Neither the tradition nor teaching authority or the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church has an authority equal to the scriptures, period. The Bible is the sole authority for matters of faith and practice. That's the dividing line. All this other rest of the goofy stuff we're going to get into, that's how it hinges. You say, none of that's in the Bible. They say, it don't matter. Literally, 
They don't even argue. It's like, nah, who cares? I mean, they'll say you may see it in seed form, but it's they, it's like, it goes right over there. Like, it doesn't matter to a devout Roman Catholic or a Catholic priest. It doesn't matter. Let's talk about Mary. Roman Catholics believe that Mary, quote, was totally preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. Again, we go back to this. Okay, here, I'm reading about Mary here in the Gospels. I don't read that. Don't matter. Roman Catholics teach that Mary remained a virgin throughout her life. That's interesting because the Bible flat out says she was only a virgin for so long. And she had kids. They also believe that at the end of her life that she, quote, was taken up body and soul into heaven. I'm sorry, in heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as the queen over all things. Roman Catholic Catechism. Roman Catholics refer to Mary as, quote, the Holy Mother of God. They view her, they view her as a co-mediator of God's grace and as a co-laborator. Uh, co How do you say that word? Collaborator. I should have taken a nap today. And a collaborator with the salvation of Jesus, her son. You guys, nose hair is burning yet? According to Pope Paul VI, quote, the church's devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. Our response, Mary should be honored and uh, as a godly woman who is faithful to God, the scriptures teach the virgin conception of the birth of Jesus. No doubt about that. Unlike Roman Catholic dogma, the Bible does not teach that Mary remained a virgin throughout her life. Several verses there. Nor does the Bible indicate that Mary was conceived without original sin or that she was bodily ascended into heaven. The Bible does not refer to Mary as the Holy Mother of God. The offering of adoration and prayers to Mary and to other saints is both unscriptural and it's wrong. And we get that from our reading of the Bible. What's the Roman Catholic view of sin? This is important. The Catholic, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines sin as, quote, in utterance, a deed, or desire contrary to the eternal law. Roman Catholics distinguish between two types of sin. The two types of sin are mortal and venial. Mortal sin destroys the sanctifying grace of God with the individual and necessitates forgiveness through a sacrament of reconciliation. It causes exclusion from heaven and results in, quote, the eternal death of hell. Catholics classify a sin as mortal when it meets the following conditions. So you pay attention. The sin, the sin is serious or, quote, grave, like murder, adultery, stealing, bearing false witness. It's committed with, quote, full knowledge and competent consent. A venial sin uh, is a sin that either is not serious or grave or does not involve full knowledge or competent, uh, complete consent. Unlike mortal sin, venial sin does not destroy the saving grace of God in the individual. Quote, venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace, friendship with God, charity, and consequently 
eternal happiness. You see the problem here. I mean, this, this is, the Bible does not teach, this is our response, the Bible does not teach the dual concept of mortal and venial sins. That's not in the Bible. It's just not. Apart from the saving grace of God, even the least serious sin will send a person to hell. That's our message to people. You're not okay. And you're in big, big danger. Well, I never killed anybody. See that? Have you ever heard people say that? I never killed anybody. They're getting that from the concept of this moral sin stuff. I'm not going to go to hell. The scripture also indicates that even the most serious sin is incapable of destroying the saving grace of God in the believer. That's the flip side of this. This is why the true believer in Christ cannot lose his salvation. John 10 and John 6 and a bunch of other passages. God doesn't look at sin that way. And man, can you skate through life unrepentant if you're thinking like that? That's really bad. Sacraments. There are seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church. There are baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. Quote, the seven sacraments are the signs and instruments by which the Holy Spirit spreads the grace of Christ, the head, throughout the church, which is the body. Roman Catholics believe that the sacraments are actually, uh, actually, this is important, confer the grace that they signify and that their ordained priesthood, quote, guarantees that it really is Christ who acts in the sacraments. For believers, the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church are, quote, necessary for salvation. Catechism of the Catholic Church. So they, as, as I talked last week, or two weeks ago, about this concept of great, this kind of this treasury of merit that Christ purchased and you can withdraw from, and how do you withdraw from that treasury? By, through the sacraments. You gotta go make a withdrawal, and that's the means by which that happens. Baptism, this is, quote, the faithful are born anew by baptism. So when they talk about being born again, this is, they're talking about baptism. Quote, through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ. Roman Catholics baptize their children shortly after birth. Quote, the church and the parents would deny a child the priceless, uh, would deny the child a priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. How many of you have known Roman Catholics that um, have a family member, they give birth, and maybe those people are either just totally agnostic or whatever, or they're not Catholic or whatever, and they're not baptizing that baby, and the family is about to have a heart attack. I, I have counseled with many people who have had family put tremendous pressure on them. Like, we understand you're in a Christian church, but, but we just please get this baby baptized. Think about it, because if you're not baptized, you're not born anew. You're going to hell. The church and the parents would deny a child a priceless grace of becoming a child of God. Roman Catholics teach that, quote, baptism is necessary for salvation. This is their words. Baptism is necessary for salvation for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament. So if you... <laughs> 
So you say, I just heard about all this stuff. I wasn't baptized as a baby. Well, you better get, they would say, you better get baptized right now. Right now. It's necessary for salvation. Quote, by baptism, all sins are forgiven. You hear that? People will, sometimes will say, well, we're, we're basically the same. It's really all about the same anyway. No, it ain't. By baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and personal sins as well as punishment for sin. We're not teaching the same thing, are we? Confirmation. Confirmation completes baptismal grace by increasing the gifts and strengths of, of the Holy Spirit in the recipient. It is usually done by the bishop when a child reaches, quote, the age of discretion. So it's like, it's confirmation. Confirmation. That it's, the, that you're committed basically. The Eucharist or the Mass. Quote, the Eucharist or communion is the source and summit of the Christian life. Have you ever all been into a Roman Catholic sanctuary? There's a difference in the way they, they set their furniture up, per se, versus the way the Baptists and most Reformed folks, not all, Lutherans are different like this too, but the centerpiece of the Roman Catholic Mass in a service is the table with the Eucharist, not the pulpit. That's not on accident. The pulpit is to the side. And they'll give up there and they give a little liturgy and they give a little, I don't know what you want to call it, sermonette for Christianettes. I don't know what, you know, but that's to the side. The centerpiece that everyone's looking at is that table with the communion. Why, Pastor Gary, do we do it different? Because we believe that the centerpiece of Christian worship is the proclamation of the Word of God. And so the Reformers 500 years ago said, no, we'll set the table aside and put the pulpit preeminent, dead center. And some Reformed churches, it's even elevated. You have to walk upstairs to get up to it because it's exalted, the preaching of the gospel, preaching. But anyway, the Eucharist is the source and summit, the top of the Christian life. Roman Catholics maintain that the miracle of transubstantiation takes place during the Eucharist. In the sacrament, they believe that there occurs, quote, a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. You say, now that sounds like they're saying that the, that the bread and the wine turn into flesh and blood. That's what... That's what it sounds like, isn't it? The reason it sounds like that is because that's what they teach. You say, well, it doesn't look like it changed. They say, well, there's your miracle. <laughs> it's like if you, an amputee, you know, with no two legs cut off. Well, you actually had your legs healed. There's just no evidence of it. But it's real. You have your legs. There's no evidence of this, right? But this is what they teach. You have to believe this by faith, of course, because there's no evidence for it. By receiving the Eucharist, Catholics believe they are receiving Christ. You know, Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. So they say, well, we got to do that. You know, the ancient church, the ancient Christians, primitive Christians, part of the justification for their persecution was that people were saying they're cannibals. Because when they're together, they talk about eating the flesh and blood of Christ. And we believe we do that symbolically, the way Jesus described it. He says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. 
of his body and blood. And we're to think of his body and blood. We're to, we're to, when, we're, when we're having that communion, we're to, we're to be, I mean, it, it is the physical touch and the physical nature of it means something. It is real uh, as far as a, a tangible reminder that it was broken, right? And the blood was poured out. But they believe it actually happens. They, I mean, they actually believe it's real flesh. I don't know what else to say about that. Penance or confession. Penance is the sacrament of reconciliation. That's what they teach. In the sacrament, the sinner confesses all mortal sins to the priest. The priest imposes acts of penance and offers forgiveness of sin. Quote, indeed, bishops and priests, by virtue of the sacrament of holy orders, so like their ordination, have the power to forgive all sins. Man. We're, we're not the same. You picking up on that yet? According to Roman Catholics, this sacrament reconciles one with God and, quote, obtain, and obtains, quote, forgiveness of sins committed after baptism. See, when you're baptized, remember, you're born anew. You're born again, right? But, you, but, but then you start sinning. And so you start screwing up your, your standing with God. So you got to, remember, you got to hit this treasury of merit. You got to, you need a download. You keep getting downloads of, of grace. And this is a big one. Penance. Anointing of the sick, formerly known as extreme unction. Only priests and bishops can give this sacrament using oil blessed by the bishop. The sacrament may be given when a Catholic is in danger of death because of illness or old age. It's like, it's like let's make sure this guy, if he's not going straight to heaven, let's try to make sure that we can get him a, a short time in purgatory. Holy orders. Catholics believe the sacrament confers sacred power for service. There are three degrees of holy order. The highest is that of bishop, then priest or presbyter, and then deacon. Without the bishop, presbyter, and deacons, one cannot speak of the church. Women may not receive this ordinance. The pope is the bishop of Rome. Roman Catholics believe that he has, quote, full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church. See, we believe Jesus Christ has that. I mean, think about that. Well, he's the vicar, so that means he, he, he serves as Christ, and so he'll, he'll have full supreme and universal power over the whole church. I mean, that's just such a statement. Matrimony. Roman Catholics believe that the sacraments of matrimony give spouses the grace to love each other with the love with which Christ has loved the church. Remarriage by divorced Catholic while the lawful spouse is alive, alive is not allowed. The Roman Catholic Church, however, frequently grants annulments in which remarriage is allowed. You say, well, I don't read about that in the Bible. That's because it's not in there. But they don't care. So our response, the Bible does not teach a sacramental theology. So this is not coming from the Bible. They wouldn't even, I don't really would argue that point. What God counts with God, or what counts with God is genuine love, not ritual. Man, do they miss that. God does not use sacraments to convey grace to humanity. He just doesn't. This is why Paul can write that baptism is not part of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.17 There is only one mediator between God and humanity, and that mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2, Hebrews 9. 
Since Jesus is easily approachable, there is no need for any mediator between humanity and Jesus. Now, we got a couple minutes here, so I, I held off on showing you guys this. I'm going to give it to you way to go over it in the class. I want to read you something. This has to do with Mary, but it also has to do with their view of, of, uh, of there being other mediators besides Jesus Christ. This is a prayer that came out of devotion and honor of our mother of perpetual help. And this, this just blows my mind. And this prayer, uh, I heard James White years ago talk about this. And I've looked it up and I've always held on to this. I don't even know if a lot of Roman Catholics believe that this is the type of language used of Mary. But this is what it says. It says, O mother of perpetual help, thou art the dispenser of all the goods which God grants to us miserable sinners. And for this reason, he has made thee so powerful, so rich, and so bountiful that thou mayest help us in our misery. Thou art the advocate of the most wretched and abandoned sinners. I should have highlighted that. If, if Mary is your advocate, you're screwed. She, she's, she, Jesus is our advocate, not Mary. Nowhere does the Bible describe any of this nonsense. And abandoned sinners who have recourse to thee. Come then to my help, my dearest mother, for I recommend myself to thee. Look, listen to this. In thy hands I place my eternal salvation, and to thee I entrust my soul. I mean, this, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. Count, this is idolatry. This is blasphemy. It says, count me among thy most devoted servants. Take me under thy protection, and it is enough for me. For if thou protect me, dear mother, I fear nothing. Not from my sins, because thou wilt obtain for me the pardon of them. Did Mary obtain the part, your pardon? No. Who did? Because I have a pardon, but it didn't come from Mary. It came from the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. This is just heresy. This is blasphemy. I don't know. What word do you want to use? But I have no fear from anything. Not from the devils, because thou art more powerful than all held together, nor even from Jesus, my judge himself, because by one prayer from thee, he will be appeased. So Mary, you're, you're in charge here. You can shield me from this jerk, Jesus, who's the judge. You are full of grace, not him, right? That, I, mean, I mean, how do you read that? But one thing I fear, that in the hour of temptation, I may neglect to call on thee and thus perish miserably. Obtain for me then the pardon of my sins. Love for Jesus and final perseverance. Listen, folks. Jesus obtained our pardon for our sins. Jesus is the Savior and sustainer. So we will persevere. 
because of Jesus and what he obtained for us, not Mary. Obtain for me then the pardon for my sins, love for Jesus, final perseverance, and the grace always to have recourse to thee. Always. Always. O mother of perpetual help. This is, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they've got hundreds of them that they could go through, but this is, this is a big one. Devotions in honor of our mother, perpetual help. It's very clear what they're trying to say. <laughs> but I think I need a priest to interpret this one. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Where's a priest at? James White was with a priest, Jerry Maddox, who is an apologist in that realm on a radio station, and he read this to them, to him. And the host, they gasped. Like the host was like, whoa. And he, James White was hoping a bell would go. Like, do you understand? And Mattatix's response to him after taking a breath, like, that is pretty strong. He said, James, he goes, I hope that one day you can pray a prayer like that. That's what he said. James White. Like, nah. No thanks. All right, let's close here with uh, just guidelines for witnessing the Roman Catholics. Because this is good stuff. Good good advice from Nam. Again, these are notes from Nam. It made my job easier, believe me, because I was going to put a whole bunch of stuff together, but I just said I'm just going to do this and give them credit for it. First thing, remember that salvation does not depend on church membership, but comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Their church membership doesn't save them. It doesn't make them unsavable. Like the, the issue, that's not the issue. That's not the issue. Pray and trust in the Holy Spirit to use the gospel message to reach the hearts and minds of those who are lost. And that right there, you can just stop there, basically. Believe in the power of the gospel. Believe in that. And pray that the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does and awakens his people. Man, if we just quit trying to... You can discuss to the, with them this Mary stuff and purgatory. We didn't even get into that. All this other stuff. And, and there's, there's a time and place for that. But get to the gospel of salvation, of grace. And pray for the Holy Spirit to, to enlighten them, convict them. Share a testimony of your personal faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your testimony of what Jesus has accomplished in your life. It's kind of like what Ted was talking about earlier when Jesus just, just got a hold of him. Like something happened. Your testimony of what Jesus has accomplished in your life can have a great impact on them. Keep your testimony short. Avoid using terms that are unfamiliar to Roman Catholics, such as walk the aisle and got saved and born again. You know, I know you guys heard that term growing up, you know, fundamental Baptist church. You know, one of the Bible-believing kinds, you know. But they, they, don't, they don't get that stuff. So just, just cut the jargon. Share the assurance of salvation that God's grace gives you. That's a big one. Make sure that you communicate that your assurance, your assurance is derived from trusting Jesus and not from your good works or your ability to remain faithful or from Mary. I'll just tack that on. Give them a New Testament. Roman Catholics are now encouraged to read the Bible. That's a good thing. Point out texts that explain salvation, like Romans 3, 5, 6, 10, 13, John 3, 16, Romans 2, 8 through 9. Avoid getting bogged down with secondary issues. That's what I was saying there. That are not central to salvation. When you touch on them, it's good. But 
try to keep on track here on this issue of the gospel. Keep the gospel presentation Christ-centered. It says here, quotes are taken from the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, out of the 94 edition. Right, there are different. There is. And even around the world. Like, so if you go down to well, South America, if you go into South America, it's, it is different. In fact, that's where the Pope is from. Um, I don't know what country he's from now off the top of my head, but like, he, you know, very socialistic. And so they're very. So there is differences. If you go into Romania, where it's just heavily Eastern Orthodox, but there are Roman Catholics, their flavor is different. <laughs> Definitely. I'm not talking about just language. Um, but there's basic agreement on these big issues. Because you got, like you said, you got the Jesuits and you've got, I can't remember off the top of my head. There, there are different, like different, yeah. Most of the Roman Catholics that you know have no clue about any of this stuff. And I don't know if I should say that's sad or not sad, right? I mean, I guess it's good they don't know all this junk, but that just tells you that it's just a, a you go to church. You go, you go, you go, if you do something really bad, you go to community, you go to, try to get to a confession once a month at least. Do what you're supposed to do, right? Do the baptisms, take the community, you know, do these things, right? But that, that's, it, that's all it is. This is just what good people do. It's what good people do. So, so that's why every now and then, though, you start talking to one and you find out, whoa, uh, he's not just the average Roman Catholic. Like, this guy knows a little something, and so it's good to know the background of some of these doctrines. 